context of tort law and contract law. And however one feels about it, and I assume there will be considerable diversity of opinion among the panelists, there seems no doubt that the law has changed radically in the past couple of decades. And that change has very often relieved persons of obligations they have undertaken. Now such changes do not occur in isolation. So the changes in judge-made law are likely to reflect strong currents in the culture, and the law will reflect those changes and also tend to reinforce them. There will, of course, be resistance to that, and when the resistance occurs, I think we're entitled to think that this, the broader movement, at least, is entitled to be called a war of the culture, and that's what I think we have. Indeed, the Federalist Society was formed in order to do battle on one side of that war in the law, and particularly in the law schools. And we've been, all this week, we have been watching one manifestation of that with the nomination and confirmation hearings of Clarence Thomas, who I think is going to win by 80 to 90 votes in the Senate. But uh, the Democrats in the Senate understand, although they can't quite get a, get a grip on it now, that they are battling over the future of the law in each of these confirmation hearings. Now, I'm not entirely clear how to describe in a single phrase what is happening in the culture, but we are seeing a change from individual responsibility to, as uh, Mr. Huber put it in his book, Peter Huber put it, uh, move from individual responsibility to collective responsibility. And of course, that's nowhere more true than in tort law. Uh, and that is what that movement away from individual responsibility, of course, is very strong in constitutional law as it is here. And perhaps we'll get into that later. But I am going to introduce the panelists as their turn comes to speak. And I hope the introductions I've been given to read for them are more accurate than the one they gave me. <laughs> you will notice that I am listed as the author of numerous books. That's two. <laughs> and with that, I will introduce our first speaker, Mr. Walter Olson, who is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research and who directs its Judicial Studies program. He explores the impact of litigation on American life. And he's written regularly in publications like the Wall Street Journal, Fortune Barons, and so forth. And he has written a wonderful book that I just reviewed called The Litigation Explosion, What Happened When America Unleashed the Lawsuit. 
It says here it's been critically acclaimed from coast to coast. I don't know who the person is on the other coast. <laughs> he, however, uh, studied uh, economics at Yale and UCLA, and he previously worked for the American Enterprise Institute, an organization I urge you to support. And he has worked in the House of Representatives and is a member of the transition team when the Reagan administration was coming in. Mr. Olson. Thank you, uh, Judge Bork, uh, and all of you at the Federalist Society. Uh, that should have been acclaimed on numerous coasts. Uh, well, what? What, one of the, uh, what, what, one of the uh, consequences of recent world events has been the impending uh, disappearance of uh, communism jokes. And uh, before we lose the memory of what these were, I'd like to tell one, one brief one, which is the one about the plotters. This was before they took over, and the uh, veteran leader is haranguing the group of, of dedicated revolutionaries and says, uh, after the revolution, comrades, uh, we shall all dine on strawberries and cream. And there is a hand that is raised at the back of the auditorium, and a, a new recruit uh, is recognized and says, but comrade, I don't really care for strawberries and cream. And uh, the leader begins to explain, ah, strawberries and cream have long been recognized as a wholesome dish, a desirable dish, uh, written up in world, the world's great poetry. And, and the man at the back of the audience is still unconvinced and says, well, I don't know why, but I just, just don't like them. And the, the leader at this point says, rest assured, comrade, that after the revolution, you will like strawberries and cream. <laughs> now, paternalism, of course, is not confined to any one side of the political spectrum, any one ideology. It, it tends to be found wherever there are utopian ideas, and it, it even uh, crops up in this country. Uh, in these days of nutritional correctness, the, the cream would be omitted, and we would all have to like strawberries and oat bran muffins. And um, it has even turned up uh, in our court system. Um, after the revolution, uh, which perhaps has already taken place, uh, everyone will be caring for everyone else's safety. Everyone else will be looking out for everyone else's legitimate interests. Uh, there will be a duty to exercise good faith and fair dealing in all relationships. Um, and you may be raising your hand at this point, is, is someone, and, and saying, I'm not sure I want these benefits. Uh, I may not agree with the court's definition of what is negligent or unreasonably unsafe. I may not uh, want to keep the other side guessing about whether they can be sued. I might even be willing to forgive or pre-forgive uh, some behavior that I know is bad. Uh, but, but you there raising your hand on that theory, you, you are out of luck because uh, your rights to sue, like the strawberries and cream, are undisclaimable in a great many instances. They are grounded not in traditional contract law, but in the new tort law. And we know the basic differences. The model of tort law is the one-sided, gratuitous infliction, the stranger who drives into your front porch and demolishes it. Uh, nothing is prearranged. Nothing is of mutual benefit here. Uh, the model of contract is that both sides have hoped to gain something by their dealings. Uh, your front porch is still demolished, but it's because of a bad contracting job. Uh, tort is seen as being socially imposed or, or perhaps derived from 
natural law, but in any case, arising from obligation, which I don't say in a derisive way, but, but in any case, arising from something other than the choices of the parties, contract is, is very much chosen and, and uh, derives from nothing else but that. Tort is, uh, in some sense, perhaps because we say so, we, we society, we judges, we, we the individual judge, uh, speaking in an editorial, we contract is supposed to be because you said so. And for, from, uh, you, you know some of the other distinctions in, in tort law, you can get punitive damages typically and, and emotional damages, and in, in contract law you have to sort of put down those weapons when you enter the saloon. <clears throat> because people probably won't deal with you if they're, if they're terrified by such things. Um, but then in more recently have come doctrines of unconscionability of public policy, of, of construing uh, contracts against ma ma makers and various other things. Um, and now we have Delbert Yates Jr. Uh, uh, successfully suing the Chicago Cubs. Uh, Delbert was sitting in the stands when a foul ball hit by then first baseman Leon Durham uh, flew into the stands and hit him, and although there is a long-standing tradition that the baseball team doesn't pay in that case, it did not convince a Cook County Circuit Court a year or two ago. Uh, we now have in Oklahoma and elsewhere uh, what are inelegantly called cramdowns. Uh, these are things that happen instead of foreclosures where the mortgage holder is allowed simply, or the, 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 the uh, borrower is allowed simply to have part of the mortgage amputated that he or she can't afford to pay, and the bank does not get to take the house. Uh, as the debtor's attorney put it in, in one of these cases, seemingly persuasively, if the lender makes a stupid loan, why shouldn't he pay for it? Uh, and the old, the old answer, of course, would have been because your client promised that he wouldn't. Uh, the same trends are seen in, in employment law, in landlord-tenant law, in insurance law. One of my least favorite cases came from brokerage law, where um, I think many of you are familiar with discount brokers. Uh, discount brokers, to me, uh, uh, have as their most attractive characteristic not that they charge lower rates, although that is nice, but that they never call you. Uh, they, <laughs> the, the phone will not ring at 7.15 uh, in the evening uh, with a self-interested uh, admonition that you must certainly sell all of the things that they recommended you buy four months ago and replace it with a different portfolio uh, for your own good. Um, they, <coughs> Charles Schwab, in fact, uh, in, in the several years I've had an account there, has never called, for which I am grateful. And uh, this is n has now been ruled to be tortious or, or, or something, because inevitably some clients of these, uh, these firms uh, committed what was colorfully called financial suicide, uh, using the discount brokers as an instrumentality to get into the markets. We, we always thought that the discount brokers were uh, the precursors of the coming electronic age when we would all be able to get into the trading bulletin boards with our modems and eliminate all human uh, middle people. But uh, it, it seems that this may not happen because they now have an affirmative duty to keep us from making severe financial mistakes, which means that they will be calling. Um, my point is that it is frequently quite rational to deal with people, even to prefer to deal with people who are not looking out for our own interests, uh, who we expect to be only human, perhaps negligent or worse, to absolve them in some cases uh, before or after the fact uh, for acting like SOBs. Uh, 
Forgiveness, or pre-forgiveness, is not all that strange a phenomenon, except in litigation. Um, we do choose to get in the car with drivers in our family that we think are reckless. Uh, if you are an employee and you uh, make a mistake with software and your office goes down for several hours, your employer will not necessarily come after you for uh, business interruption and lost sales. It recognizes not only that it has goodwill to preserve by forswearing its right to do so, but that it will get a lot less cooperation from employees it would like to hire if it has a reputation for doing that. And the general public knows this too. It, it recognizes uh, a, a lot of this. When I speak to audiences around the country, I can say that no question is as common, none is as common as the one about whatever happened to individual responsibility, why don't people recognize that sometimes they just make a bargain, uh, that, that they um, uh, you know, don't turn out to like, uh, why don't they live with those bargains? Uh, no cases make people matter than the drunk who fell onto the subway tracks in New York and won $9.3 million. Uh, the similar case where the person who fell onto the trucks won six million, or the, the would-be suicide who had to make do with 2.5 million from the New York City government uh, because his case was less sympathetic in, in jumping before in front of the subway deliberately. Um, now, <clears throat> these cases uh, annoy people pretty consistently outside the legal profession. The, the law... <laughs> The, the lawsuits brought, brought by the drunk driver as opposed to against the drunk driver, these do annoy. The case recently from Framingham, Massachusetts, where Christopher Duffy, uh, uh, the late Christopher Duffy, stole a car, drove off at high speed, uh, crashed it, and was killed, and his estate came along uh, and sued the proprietors of the parking lot for allegedly making the car too easy for him to steal. Um, the woman who read the recipe in Women's Day magazine, I'm not making these up, um, <laughs> said <clears throat> the, the, the woman who um, read one of these casually worded recipes, which began, put a can of soup in the crock pot, and uh, did not re read in the omitted term, as, as the lawyer might put it, that you should open the can of soup. <laughs> and, 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 and she did indeed get money from the publishers of Women's Day magazine uh, on a theory of negligent recipe uh, publishing. <laughs> the, the, the case reported within the last day or two of the concert goer suing uh, the entertainer David Bowie, or perhaps his managers or producers, I, I have this at second hand, uh, for hearing loss, which I can well believe, but, but uh, uh, which risk one would have thought would have been assumed, or the case a couple of months ago of the young man suing the Nintendo company for so-called Nintendo Elbow, uh, a uh, familiar phenomenon caused by the addictive quality of that video game. The, well, the other side likes to point out that uh, uh, these are one-sided cases and that a great many uh, contract relationships are uh, not quite uh, between the atomistic individuals that we read about, not, uh, not quite as sympathetic to the, the party being sued as these, that people will very often feel that they, they have been forced to take out a mortgage on, on set terms, that they have really been forced to take a particular job because none other is, is nearly as attractive that um, 
they, they don't really feel entirely at liberty in their dealings in the marketplace or with um, their uh, ex-spouses with whom they've signed a, a settlement agreement or, or whatever it, it is. And of course there is an element of, of truth in that. There is at least a, a dot of yin in the yang which um, uh, will always provide food for discussion. I'd like to point out that there is also, however, a dot of, of yang in the yin in that the stranger cases where tort law um, uh, has always had its, its um, uh, greatest strength uh, intuitively and, and uh, which is uh, which even we would consider should be tort cases uh, uh, nonetheless have more than a little element of contract uh, re recognized in such traditional doctrines as contributory negligence and assumption of risk uh, even though there is not an explicit verbal contract there is so often a kind of nonverbal signaling um, Compare, for example, the Chicago Cubs case with the familiar case of an amateur local softball game, uh, which a stranger walks up to because it is fun to watch softball games and is beamed by one of the balls. Uh, no explicit contract there the way there had been with the ticket that the Cubs give out to everyone who passes through their gate. And yet, um, it, it's not too difficult to see that uh, the, the legal treatment uh, uh, might well let that softball team off. Those who move to a risk are often in Indeed, voluntarily, if not verbally, signaling a bargain to live with that risk. So part of our task then is not only, I would argue, to roll back the intrusion of tort law into contract, to, to bring back contract law uh, in its um, full gl glory, uh, but also to re-import the contract principles that we have been kicking out of tort law. Um, we read in one uh, textbook after another, one horn book after another, is that assumption of risk uh, is a dying remnant on its way out of the bad old legal regime uh, when people didn't take care of each other. Uh, but I think it lives on in the common sense of Americans. Uh, Americans who go into the back country for a hike, who enter the hospital for an operation, who take out a mortgage. Uh, it is the proper legal reflection of the sense of individual responsibility that has made, still makes, and will continue to make America the great and free country that it is. Thank you. Well, that's, I, I like that, Mr. Olson. You convinced me that Western civilization is in decline, and the only question is the pace. That fits my mood at this hour. <laughs> but maybe our next speaker will reverse that decline. This is Justice Joseph R. Groton, who's currently on sabbatical at the Rockefeller Foundation's Bellagio Center. If you can get me in there, I would like to consider it. He received his BA from uh, the University of California at Berkeley, his JD from Yale, and his PhD in labor and law relations from the London School of Economics. From 1955 to 1972, he was with a San, a San Francisco firm specializing in labor law. He taught at the University of California Hastings College of Law from 1972 to 1979, when he became an Associate Justice on the California Court of Appeals, and in 1982 a Presiding Justice of the Court of Appeals, and from 1982 to 1987 was an Associate Justice on the California Supreme Court. He has returned uh, to academia, uh, first teaching at Berkeley and at UCLA, and then again at Hastings, where he is still on the faculty. Justice Grodin.
correction of biographies of the department. Uh, it would come, um, I, I wish it were true that I were on sabbatical at Bellagio, uh, and, and, and it would come as a great surprise to my dean right now to learn that, that, that I am. Uh, I spent a very pleasant uh, summer there a couple years ago. Uh, I, I'd love to go back, but the rule is you can't go back more than once in 10 years, and I'm not sure whether I'm going to make that. Um, well, uh, Professor Olson uh, has provided us with uh, an amusing and fast-moving uh, dialogue, which is a little difficult for me to get hold of. Uh, uh, and so I would, I would like, um, um, I'd like to try to present uh, an analytical framework uh, which focuses upon contract and its relation to tort within uh, the theme of this conference of individual responsibility. And let me start uh, by inviting your acceptance of a series of propositions. First proposition is uh, that oppression uh, of people may, uh, may occur uh, by private uh, power centers as well as by government. That is, people may be oppressed um, by their employers, by uh, the labor unions, uh, by, the, by insurance companies, um, by other uh, centers of power. Um, and second, that, uh, that oppression uh, is a legitimate subject of government uh, action. Uh, when people are oppressed by private power centers, it is appropriate for government through law uh, to intervene and address itself to that oppression. Third proposition is that uh, contract, that the law of contract, the doctrine of contract, uh, while uh, historically uh, was the handmaiden of liberty, uh, can also be a tool of oppression. Uh, Sir Henry Maine talked about the progress of the law being from status to contract, but we know that contract uh, can also be a form of status. Uh, I used to represent labor unions, uh, labor unions have bylaws, which uh, when I was a lawyer representing them, I said, <clears throat> these are contracts uh, among the members of the union. And a contract uh, should be regarded as a contract between um, the union and, and uh, each member individually, so that when a person becomes a member of the union, he subscribes to this contract and um, uh, he's bound by it. And uh, if the contract says that he can be uh, expelled from union membership for any reason or by any process, he agreed to that, and um, he should be held to his contract. Uh, the courts did not accept that proposition, and I think uh, quite properly rejected it. Uh, the courts said, uh, this is a contract in name only. It's a contract of adhesion. It's a contract that is imposed by a party of superior bargaining strength upon an individual under circumstances in which no market really exists. Uh, it is a form of status imposed in the guise of contract. And both courts and legislatures came to impose limitations upon the union member relationship uh, that uh, went beyond, uh, were not limited by the terms of any agreement. 
we have um, uh, in the employment relationship generally a variety of such limitations. And I choose that relationship because it's one that I'm familiar with and it's also one that I think uh, illustrates a sort of paradigm, uh, uh, the kind of tension that is exemplified by uh, the title of this program. Uh, there, are, there have always been limitations on uh, employment contracts, at least in this country. Uh, we cannot contract to sell ourselves into slavery, for example. Uh, we cannot give up our freedom uh, in return for any amount of money in such a way that the court will enforce that bargain. And then we have uh, legislatively imposed wage and hour laws, uh, which are limitations of contract. We have uh, workers' compensation, which is a limitation of contract. I mean, in, in principle, an employer uh, could ob obtain from an employee a waiver of any liability um, for uh, injuries occurring on the job. I mean, and, uh, Professor Olson talks about the, uh, the fellow with the baseball game. Do we, do we want to live in a society in which uh, a, a worker, as a condition of obtaining employment, may be required uh, to relinquish any claim to liability uh, on the part of uh, on the part of the employer through workers' compensation or negligence or otherwise. Uh, we have Title VII and its uh, limitations upon contract through uh, insistence on non-discrimination principles. Uh, we have uh, the Occupational Safety and Health Act, uh, which tells us that uh, when, as a matter of uh, public policy, we're not going to leave uh, questions of safety entirely to the marketplace. Uh, we have the fairly recent polygraph testing law, which was the uh, product of joint sponsorship by the keynote uh, speaker to uh, this conference, uh, telling us that uh, uh, contract is not to be the, the determinant of when an employer can insist upon giving employees a polygraph test or rely upon them uh, as a basis for dismissal from employment. All of these are intrusions uh, upon contract. Uh, the ones I've mentioned are intrusions uh, through uh, legislative enactment rather than through courts, but I think that it's important to recognize the principle that if what we're talking about is contract versus individual responsibility, um, that tension exists in the realm of statutory uh, exceptions as well as in the realm of common law exceptions. Um, the, the argument might well be made that uh, exceptions to the contract principle are more appropriately the subject of legislative action than judicial action for a variety of reasons. Uh, and, I, and I would agree with that, uh, although I would not agree with it to the extent of saying uh, that it is never appropriate for the courts uh, to, to uh, recognize and develop limitations upon uh, contract principles. That, too, has been uh, part of our jurisprudence for, for uh, many decades, if not centuries. Uh, and um, I think it's important to recognize in that connection that we're not talking about uh, the Madisonian dilemma here. We're not talking about constitutional principles and uh, the autonomy of a, of a uh, 
of an un unelected uh, judiciary imposing its uh, will upon the democratically elected branches, uh, we're talking about common law. Uh, we're talking about a set of legal principles that um, uh, were created by judges in the first place. Uh, they may have been created uh, with attention to principles that permeated the institutions of particular societies and were not the reflections of individual predilections. Uh, but they were created, nevertheless, by uh, human beings that were judges, and they were not rooting omnipresences in the sky. Um, and the common law is subject to change. There is a continuing dialogue between the courts and the legislature. So that in the field of uh, labor union regulation that I mentioned, the exceptions to the contract principle the courts developed uh, in the process of adjudication came to be adopted by legislatures in the states and the federal Congress through the Labor Management Reporting and Disclosure Act. Uh, in California, the uh, principles that, uh, uh, that courts developed in the area of uh, limitations upon contract and insurance, for example, uh, came in many respects to be adopted by the legislature and codified. To the extent that the legislature didn't agree with them, they changed them. Uh, so I don't think that, um, I don't think we should be uh, talking here as if there is something um, uh, peculiar about uh, judge-made law uh, in, in, with respect to the tension between uh, contract and tort. Now, uh, the, the question then is not, I would suggest, whether we're going to have some abstract notion of freedom of contract that will be sacrosanct. I mean, I, I doubt that there are very many people here who, who believe that as an absolute principle. I would hope not. Uh, the question is, uh, under what circumstances is the law justified in imposing limitations upon the use of contract to impose conditions upon, um, uh, to impose conditions which, which the society may regard as oppressive. And I would suppose uh, that the answer uh, is that the circumstances are those in which uh, we think that the market doesn't operate very well. Uh, either because we have some theoretical basis for believing that in particular contexts uh, the, the market uh, does not operate as, as the uh, theoretical economists tell us it ought to. I, I suggest that's true, for example, in the employment context. Uh, I suggest it's true also in the insurance context. Um, or because, uh, as a pragmatic matter, we look at the results and we, and we find them to be unacceptable. Uh, we look at uh, uh, the question of safety in the workplace and we find um, workers being subjected to unsafe conditions, uh, and, and we say to ourselves, um, it, 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 it is no answer to that question to tell a worker who is subjected to toxic conditions in the workplace, if you don't like them, go get a job where there, are, where there isn't toxicity. I mean, there's something about that that, um, uh, that tells us that, that that answer is not uh, uh, entirely uh, acceptable. Um, what, one more comment, and then, um, then I um, will leave the field to my colleagues here. Uh, and that has to do with the question of uh, remedies. 
Um, I think it's important to distinguish between the question um, under what circumstances should uh, the law impose conditions that are not waivable by contract? Uh, and the question, uh, what kinds of remedies should be invoked for uh, what kinds of obligations? And uh, again, that, that is a question that can be posed both to legislatures and to courts. Uh, I heard the, uh, uh, the nominee for the Supreme Court uh, yesterday uh, tell us that in his view, uh, the remedies of reinstatement and back pay for a person who has been discriminated against are inadequate uh, to, to, uh, uh, it, with respect to the nature of the injury that is inflicted by discrimination. And that it is, in his view, uh, the remedy should include uh, uh, additional compensatory remedies and perhaps uh, uh, punitive damages in the form of treble damages or something of the sort. Um, unfortunately, in the common law, uh, principles have developed in a rather rigid way so that courts have available to them, uh, as a general proposition, contract principles or tort principles of recovery. And, and both those are, are rather rigid systems. Uh, contract principles often yield uh, recovery which, uh, which may be inadequate for certain kinds of injuries that are called contracts. And I think uh, that uh, when an insurance company, for example, uh, not only fails to pay uh, the um, uh, fails to pay the benefits that are provided for in the policy, but adopts uh, a, adopts a policy of jerking its its uh, uh, its policyholders around in the hope that they will abandon their claims because to get a to to hire a lawyer to sue them won't be worthwhile uh, if all that can be recovered ultimately is the amount that was owed in the first place. Uh, then I think it's quite appropriate to consider uh, some additional remedy and the, the uh, remedy that courts, the alternative that courts have available to them in that regard uh, is the tort remedy. I think there are problems with tort remedies too. If you want to talk about punitive damages, I think there are problems with punitive damages. Uh, in, in, in my view, uh, the ideal solution with respect to remedies doesn't lie either in the realm of traditional contract or tort remedies, but in more creative remedies uh, that might be created by the legislature. Uh, but that is, again, not to say that, that uh, courts uh, should therefore hold their hands behind their backs when it comes to uh, con considering these matters. Well, um, the title of this program is, is uh, The Death of Contract, and that was borrowed from a uh, Yale uh, law professor's, uh, 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 Grant Gilmore's uh, book. Uh, Grant Gilmore in his book, uh, Grant Gilmore's, in his uh, lectures on history of American law, uh, ends up by saying that uh, in hell, uh, there will be nothing but law and due process will be meticulously observed. Um, I think, um, uh, in in uh, the view of uh, in, the, in the view of some uh, in hell, uh, we will uh, be subjected each day uh, to uh, uh, sulfur fumes, uh, and we will be asked to sign um, each day as we enter into the sulfur fume baths 
uh, a little form that absolves the owners from any liability that may occur to us as a result. It's also, uh, I have to say, uh, sort of special to be invited to speak to a group like this about contract law. Uh, you may find this hard to believe, but when I got into teaching and I started teaching and specializing in contract law, invitations to address groups like the Federal Society just didn't start rolling in. Um, this probably contributes in some uh, manner to why it is I started writing about uh, the Ninth Amendment and constitutional uh, law. It changed things uh, considerably. Uh, I have to say, though, uh, you know, uh, just so it's clear, you and I have never discussed this matter, that my interest in the Ninth Amendment actually precedes your nomination uh, to the Supreme Court. Uh, it actually began with a uh, 1986 speech I made to the Stanford Federalist Society uh, annual meeting. Um, however, I also uh, probably owe you a considerable debt of gratitude since uh, you have done more than anyone else to increase the demand for the scholarship that I've produced. <laughs> The topic of our panel this morning uh, is the death of contract, and uh, I'm pleased to report to you that the uh, reports of contracts' uh, complete demise uh, have been greatly exaggerated. Uh, despite the fond hopes of generations of legal scholars and analysts, uh, freely negotiated and enforceable contracts still govern the bulk of our commercial relations in this country, particularly large, complex commercial relations as opposed to consumer transactions. I want to begin my presentation this morning by acknowledging the important role that Alan Farnsworth has played in keeping contracts alive. Professor Farnsworth is without doubt the preeminent American contracts authority. His principal contributions have taken the form of the second restatement of contracts for which he was the reporter, 
succeeding Professor Robert Brocker in the job, and his masterful one-volume treatise on contracts published by Little Brown. These two projects are testimony to the fact that one person can make a difference in the development of the law. They have been the doctrinal glue holding the rules and principles of contract law together against a siege of anti-contract ideology coming from academia. And I would be unfair to Alan if I neglected to mention his many theoretically insightful law review articles, particularly those concerning contractual interpretation. If the goal of this morning's panel was to hear from two contract law professors with diametrically opposing views, then I'm afraid that a mistake was made in inviting Professor Farnsworth and myself. Uh, this is not to say, however, that I have no disagreements with Professor Farnsworth. I do. But this disagreement is a matter of contract theory that may be somewhat difficult to make either starkly ideological um, or entertaining enough for a gathering of this sort. Nonetheless, in my remarks this morning, I shall try to explain why, although contract is thankfully still alive in practice, the prevailing theory of contract has, that has been promoted by Professor Farnsworth and others is deficient in ways that leave contract law vulnerable to being undermined uh, in the ways that Wally Olson has already described for us. In particular, mainstream contract law theory is dominated by what I shall call, or what I do call, the promise theory of contracts. From the second restatement of contracts to the writings of Charles Freed, it is assumed that the basis of contracts is the keeping of one's promises. This is hardly a new development. The promise theory of contract achieved its preeminence through the efforts of Harvard law professor Samuel Williston in his famous treatise and in the first restatement of contracts for which he was the reporter. You might say that Professor Williston was the Alan Farnsworth of his day. Now I realize. <laughs> now I realize that to this audience, the promise theory may seem not only to be obviously correct, but one cannot immediately imagine an acceptable alternative to it. Certainly it seems preferable to the detrimental reliance theory of contract promoted by those on the left associated with heralding the death of contract. And I freely admit that the promise theory does have its attractions, particularly if one assesses, as I do, the vitality of contract by the extent to which the legal system implements the, I should say, abstract classical liberal value of freedom of contract. Freedom of contract has two distinct dimensions. The first, freedom from contract, stipulates that persons should not have contractual obligations imposed on them without their consent. The second, freedom to contract, stipulates that persons should have the power to alter by their consent their legal relations with each other. The promise theory has been salutary to these twin values to some degree. The promise theory views the origin of contract in the making of a promise, which means that it views the creation of contracts as arising in an important part from the voluntary acts of promisers rather than from third parties like the state. In this regard, the theory facilitates the classical liberal value of freedom to contract. The promise theory also supports the notion that contracts should be interpreted according to the terms of the promise rather than by imposing terms on the parties. In this regard, the theory facilitates the classical liberal value of freedom from contract. These strengths of the promise theory are why I credit Professor Farnsworth, one of the leading proponents of this theory of contract, with helping to keep contracts alive. By promoting the promise theory so effectively, he has bolstered both freedom from and freedom to contract. Yet the promise theory is not without its difficulties. Unfortunately, for someone charged with giving a 15 to 20 minute talk, these difficulties are extremely complex and hard to explain concisely. 
With this caveat in mind, however, and at the risk of substantial oversimplification, I shall attempt to briefly summarize some of the problems that arise from adhering to the promise theory of contract. Serious problems with the promise theory begin the moment we ask why it is that promises should be legally enforced. Remember the problem for which the promise theory is supposed to be the solution is to figure out exactly why contracts are legally enforceable. That is, we are concerned not with why persons ought to keep their word, but with the question of why and therefore when coercion may be used by third parties, including the state, to compel promisers either to perform or pay damages when they fail to keep their word. The best known answers to the question of legal enforceability provided by the promise theory are often either highly moralistic or are tort-like in nature. Professor Charles Fried, for example, has argued, that the has argued that the proposition that persons ought to keep their promises is a moral one. They would be acting badly if they did not. But a moral theory of promising would have courts enforcing purely moral commitments. It is tantamount to legislating virtue. This rather open-ended commitment leads to problems for freedom of contract. First, it commits courts to enforcing promissory commitments that the parties themselves may never uh, have reasonably contemplated as contractual, thereby undermining the value of freedom from contract. Secondly, once the moral behavior of the promisor is deemed relevant to the issue of enforceability, the promise theory appears also to make relevant to the issue of enforcement other moral aspects of the promisor's behavior that may argue against enforcement, thereby undermining the value of freedom to contract. In this manner, the common law rights of contract can come to resemble in practice the judicial discretion of a court of equity. Another popular way of justifying the promise theory is to look at the promise from the direction of the promisee. That is, persons may be compelled to perform or pay damages because others are likely to rely to, upon a promise to their detriment. This was the rationale for contract law offered by Fuller and Purdue in their famous article, The Reliance Interest in Contract Damages. Though as evidenced by his later article, Consideration in Form, Fuller himself never took an injurious reliance theory as far as the many subsequent law school, law school professors who so admired the earlier work. When the enforceability of promises is justified in this way, the promise theory becomes rather a short step away from the injurious, injurious reliance theory. That is, once the injury suffered by the promisee is made the principal rationale for enforcing promises, we end up with the following very tort-like theory of contract. Just as tort actions compensate persons who are injured by physical conduct, contract actions are then viewed as compensating persons who are injured by verbal promissory conduct. In such an approach, either dimension of freedom of contract plays little, if any, if any role. In sum, this way of justifying the promise theory ends up supporting the detrimental reliance theory that is advanced by the death of contract school. Even the efficiency rationale for the promise theory provided by law and economics scholars creates problems. According to this view, an exchange of promises that is bar a bargain is enforceable because it makes both parties better off ex ante. A sole reliance on this rationale creates two problems. First, it permits promises to go unenforced whenever it is shown that factors such as unequal bargaining power or disparities of information undermine the normal assumption of mutual ex ante gain. We've already seen that uh, from uh, Professor, uh, that type of argument from Professor Grodin. Secondly, it enables some to ask why the, efficiency, the efficacy of contracts should be assessed according to the ex ante benefits rather than some assessment of the ex post fairness of the exchange. Why are the opinions of the parties before the exchange occurs the most appropriate point in a transaction to assess whether someone is made better or worse off by an exchange? 
Yet another serious problem for freedom of contract is created by the promise theory's exclusive focus on promises once it is conceded that, as it must be, that the many real-world contract law problems arise precisely because parties have unavoidably left gaps in their promises. It can then be argued that when a circumstance arises in these gaps, other non-promissory principles must be used as gap fillers. Promise theorist Charles Freed takes exactly this position in his book, Contract as Promise. So do many law and economics scholars, such as Richard Craswell of USC. Since, for a variety of reasons, the problem of promissory gaps is pervasive, this approach legitimates a variety of gap-filling rules based not on the party's explicit or implicit consent, but on any policy or principle a court or legislature may happen to prefer. Okay, but what alternative is there to the promise theory that can capture its advantages while avoiding its drawbacks? I favor the older view of contract that seeks to distinguish between enforceable and unenforceable promises by looking to see if the parties to an agreement manifested their intention to create or alter their legal relations. According to this approach, the factor that must accompany a promise and which justifies substantial reliance upon it is the existence of a manifested intention to create legal relations, or to use another common formulation, a manifested intention to be legally bound. In my writings on contract theory, I have called this the consent theory of contract. According to a consent theory, and here I greatly simplify the theory, promises ought to be legally enforceable if they are made in such a way as to convey to the promisee the message that the promisor intends to be held legally accountable for non-performance. This message can be conveyed formally, for example, by a signed waiver of tort liability that is written in a manner that is intelligible to the person signing it, or it can be conveyed informally, as it is in every commodities exchange in the world. But however this message may be conveyed, without this message, a promise is not enforceable as a contract. With this message, a promise is presumptively enforceable as a contract. For example, several weeks ago, I promised to speak at this meeting. Yet when I did so, I certainly did not intend to subject myself to legal sanctions should I, for some reason, fail to appear this morning. Nor do I think that Janice Calabrese, though she certainly relied on my promise, could reasonably have believed that I had assumed any contractual obligation to appear. Although she may have judged me harshly for withdrawing as a participant at the last minute without having a good reason, both she and I would consider it to be the height of injustice if the Federal Society decided to sue me for breach of contract for failing to appear this morning. Something more formal or more explicit than our phone conversation would have to have occurred to rebut the normal presumption that a promise to speak is not legally binding on the speaker, although I have no doubt that there is a court somewhere that would disagree, and at least up until recently, that somewhere was probably going to be in California. <laughs> if the promise theory, either based either on the moral theory of promise keeping or on the theory of injurious reliance, is the predominant view of the 20th century, the consent theory, whose roots go back centuries, was probably the predominant contract theory of the 19th century, although it is a little bit difficult to be sure about this, since so much of legal theory in that period was implicit rather than explicit. The view that Williston needed to argue against, and which he and others eventually defeated when they succeeded in making promise-keeping the focal point of contract theory, was stated by Yale professor Ernest Lorenzen in 1919, and I'm quoting now. Agreements, said Lorenzen, which are physically possible and legally permissible should on principle be enforceable if it was the intention of the parties to assume legal relations." Unquote. 
Williston's triumph over this view was reflected in section 20 of the first restatement, which said that, quote, neither the mental assent to the promises in the contract nor real nor apparent intention that the promise shall be legally binding is essential to contract formation. This position was adopted in section 21 of the second restatement, which stipulates that, quote, neither real nor apparent intention that a promise be legally binding is essential to the formation of a contract. Although at this point I should also add that this proposition has been qualified in the second restatement in the direction of a consent theory by the further stipulation that, quote, a manifestation of intention that a promise shall not affect legal relations may prevent the formation of a contract. By arguing as I have in my writings on contract that consent, that is a manifest intention to be legally bound, is the key to distinguishing enforceable from unenforceable promises, I do not mean to suggest that courts should simply look for this intention unguided by general rules or principles. I suspect that a direct pursuit of these intentions on a case-by-case -case basis would likely lead to more injustice from the standpoint of consent than it would avoid. To the contrary, the bargain requirement of consideration, which plays such a pivotal role in the first and second restatement of contracts, and which stipulates that mutually inducing promises are presumptively enforceable, is an excellent, though far from perfect, criterion of contractual obligation precisely because the existence of a bargain so frequently corresponds to the existence of a manifested intention to be legally bound. This means that in practice, there is often very little difference between a promise theory as embodied in the restatement and a consent theory. And this correspondence also explains why Professor Farnsworth's efforts which have put bargain uh, at the heart of contract law have been so salutary for the continued life of contract. Still an exclusive focus on either bargain for consideration or detrimental reliance, or both, creates serious problems for contract for, of under-enforcement and over-enforcement. By this I mean a failure to enforce consensual commitments that should be enforced and the enforcement of commitments that were not consented to and therefore should not be enforced. The problem of under-enforcement has already been discussed um, by other panelists. In practice, the problem of under-enforcement seems most acute when consensual commitments to waive tort liability and to assume risks of harm are held to be unenforceable no matter how demonstrable or knowledgeable may be the exercise of consent by the person who is assuming the risk. In this manner, the ability of persons to exercise freedom to contract and avoid the hazards of the tort law system of negligence is undermined, as Peter Huber and Wally Olson have so graphically described in their writings. I shall, however, take a moment to discuss the more neglected problem of over-enforcement of promises. One prominent example of over-enforcement engendered at least in part by the promise theory is the case of Texaco versus Pennzoil. As you all will recall, in this case, Texaco was accused of having tortiously interfered <coughs> with a contract that existed between the Getty Foundation and Pennzoil. <clears throat> One of Texaco's arguments was that there was no contract between Getty and Pennzoil for them to interfere with. So an important issue in the case was whether or not a contract existed between Getty and Pennzoil. The Texas Court of Appeals took the view that whether a contract existed or not depended on whether the parties, quote, intended to be bound, unquote to the agreement they had apparently reached. Although this formulation sounds like the consent theory standard of manifest intention to be legally bound, it was fatally ambiguous for Texaco. For the idea of a manifested intention to be bound, as opposed to a manifest intention to be legally bound, could simply be another way of saying that one has made a promise. <clears throat> the definition of a promise, according to the restatement, is, quote, a manifestation of intention to act or refrain from acting in a specified way, so made as to justify a promisee in understanding that a commitment had been made. I have no quarrel with this definition of a promise, but it clearly means that everyone who makes a promise is binding themselves in some significant sense. 
I surely bound myself to come to Washington this weekend to speak, even though, in my opinion at least, I did not manifest intention to be legally bound. Similarly, although the Wall Street Journal consistently maintained that the legal issue was whether the Getty Foundation had intended to be legally bound when they entered into a contract to sell Getty oil to Pennzoil, the Texas trial court and appellate courts appeared to have viewed the crucial issue as to whether a promise had been made. They concluded that sufficient evidence existed to justify the jury's verdict. Well, I can see, I, I was a former trial lawyer, a former prosecutor, I can see when the judge is getting antsy, and he's getting antsy now to see me close. Uh, so I will neglect, um, I will neglect to uh, talk, talk to you about the uh, Cohen versus Coles Media Company case, the recent case that was uh, discussed by the Supreme Court. There's a very important contract law issue in that case where the court, the Minnesota Supreme Court actually did try to apply a consent theory of contract in reaching the outcome in that case. Perhaps in the uh, discussion period I can read you some quotes from that case. So let me now just conclude by saying that um, by urging those who are interested in maintaining the life of contract to take an interest in the theories of contract that are discussed in the law schools. It is not enough to lambast the courts for reaching results that one intuitively finds absurd or unacceptable or inadequate. One must also burrow beneath the rules to find the flaw in the theory or doctrine that produced this outcome. For until we discover the theoretical or doctrinal error, we can never be completely sure that the result, rather than our, that is the result, rather than our intuitions that are mistaken. Thanks. I uh, am dismayed to learn that I have done anything to increase the supply of scholarship on the Ninth Amendment. <laughs> I urge you, Professor Barnett, to work diligently at contracts. <laughs> uh, our next speaker is, uh, is Professor E. Allen Farnsworth, who suggests I omit the introduction. I don't know whether that's to save time or because he's read it and doesn't agree with it. <laughs> but uh, I will not go through the extensive introduction. He is the author of McCormick Professor of Law at Columbia University. He is, as we learned, the uh, wrote the restatement of the second of contracts. And he has been active in a variety of fields, such as international law, and taught at the University of Paris. Harvard, the University of Chicago, University of Istanbul, and the University of Michigan. Professor Farnsworth. Thank you, Judge Park. I was simply concerned that anything you might have said would have been um, less flattering than what Professor Barnett said in the speech. <laughs> at least before he got to the but, however, and nevertheless <laughs> part of the speech. There, there is a, a, an obligatory thing, you know, for speakers in this panel, you must say something about the bios. And I, looking out, I see quite a few faces that suggest to me that you recently were in law school, took examinations, and um, that you uh, got grades and had stress, and in the printed, version, it says in the second sentence, his published works include many examinations of contracts. I, uh, reading the whole sentence, I figured out what that meant. But Judge Bork urges that I tell you that there will be no examination at the end of this panel on contracts or on anything else. Uh, the bio is a result of the fact that, uh, at least for me, Janice Calabresi um, said three things. She said you have to do three things. I thought that was a lot of things 
for a libertarian to tell a prospective speaker, <laughs> and I held my breath at the end of the three uh, for fear that um, she would say something about strawberries and cream, but she didn't. Um, first thing she said was, uh, send us a bio or we'll tell everything we know about you, and I guess they told some things <laughs> that we didn't know about all of us. And the second thing is, don't read your speech. I said, that's all right, I don't have a speech to read. And the third thing was, attack everyone, and I said, that'll come naturally. Um, <laughs> I'm going to save Professor Barnett um, uh, until her rebuttal, I think, largely. Um, and I'm going to attack Justice Grodin a little and, and, and Mr. Olson a lot because he's written a whole book and uh, that exposes him on every flank. Um, <laughs> I, I, I carry the book. I think those of you who are staying in Mayflower know that Janice Calabresi arranged to have the Gideon Bibles uh, taken out and the negations <laughs> tells me this will be reflected in uh, your uh, next royalty statement and you should call um, Charles Schwab uh, <laughs> make appropriate arrangements. My, my publisher, Little Brown, uh, may call Janice Calabresi because uh, the Gideon Bibles were not replaced by my own Bible. Um, I have two principles in which I think I largely agree with Waller Olson. I uh, put them in uh, legalistic terms. One is make your own bed and you lie in it. And the other is don't whine if the other party reallocates. Now, in more commonplace terms, the first, make your own bed and lie in it, is that if you, in your contract, shift rules or if you limit your liability, you by and large should be stuck with that. And the second is that if the other party commits what um, some law and economics folks call an efficient breach, uh, you shouldn't whine, you shouldn't ask for punitives, you're entitled to compensation, and that's what it's all about. And I think, by and large, I tend generally to agree with those things. Now, I want to make two exceptions. One exception is for consumer cases. Um, Mr. Olson's chapter, because I have to attack him, uh, on contracts spends most of its time on unconscionability cases involving consumers. Um, uh, to show my mean streak, I noted that all those cases were at least 10 years old, and I have a more upbeat message, which I'll give you in just a minute. But I think consumer cases is something you might argue about. Uh, personal injury cases, those also pose problems, though um, I have a sense of deja vu. I, this, this is the room in which the reporter uh, for restatement projects in the ALI presents the material and uh, it's a much less friendly audience. They get up at a microphone and tell you what you've done wrong and take votes and tell you to redo it. But uh, one of the things that I had the pleasure of, of presenting was a provision in this restatement second section 195.3, I think. I can hardly read my handwriting. A term exempting a seller of a product from his special tort liability for physical harm to a user or consumer, and that's the infamous section 402A of the restatement of torts, and here I'm paraphrasing, is enforceable if the term is fairly bargained for and consistent with the policy underlying that liability. And if you think that is a cautious statement of the freedom of contract, take a look at comment M to section 402A of the restatement of torts, which says you simply cannot disclaim the liability stated in that section. And it does take a little tact and cajoling and diplomatic skill of a sort to get the American Law Institute to do a flip-flop and say in the black letter something that is really opposite from what they said in the um, uh, uh, 
Hart's comment. So I have, I think, uh, limited disagreement with Mr. Olson, but mainly uh, my message is different. Um, his was uh, that the things are going to the dogs, maybe even dying. Uh, Justice Grodin, I think, may have reinforced that from another perspective. Uh, Judge Bork said that's what he liked to hear in the morning, his dismal message. Um, I think uh, <laughs> Professor Barnett was a little more upbeat, and I intend to be upbeat too, Judge Bork. I don't know whether uh, this will make your day or ruin your morning. Um, I'm going to talk about four developments in the last year or so that seem to me encouraging. I'm going to be anecdotal, but Mr. Olson was anecdotal. I'm sorry to tell you that uh, the anecdotes that I will tell are less funny than his. The ones where the bad guy wins after getting hit by the foul ball, or the bad gal wins after botching the recipe by putting the can in the mouth. They're a lot funnier. If those people had lost, nobody would have told, uh, told about the case, and certainly if they had, nobody would have left. Um, <laughs> now, point one, you make your bed and you lie on it. I think unconscionability uh, in the commercial area is somewhat overrated as a subject of uh, discussion. Uh, there are franchise cases in which uh, somebody probably with a high school education uh, does battle with an oil company over an allegedly unfair contract. Those aren't so different from consumer cases. There are people who I suppose are stylishly described as being agro in agro-business but would have been called farmers a few years ago. Uh, who had trouble reading the things on the bags of seed and the pesticides and so on. And they're the poor people who get their ads botched or not put in the yellow pages and nobody calls them. Um, those are some of the commercial cases. I think there's bigger game. I think the cases involving limitation of remedies uh, are much more interesting to watch. And that's a, a field where uh, things uh, have been in equipoise for maybe 10 years. And it's sort of interesting to see which way they might be going. Manufacturers and other distributors, sellers, frequently put in a provision saying all we'll do for you if something goes wrong is repair or replace. And in case you don't understand fully what that means, we're also not liable for any consequential damages. Those are two separate provisions. What the courts did first was fairly universally to use a rather arcane provision of the code that says if a remedy fails of its essential purpose, the court can ignore it and go on and apply what other remedy would be available. And the court says, well, if you say you'll repair or replace and you don't fix it, it's still a lemon, it still won't work, then it fails of its essential purpose. Well, you can argue with that. I, there, there is argument in print with that, but that seems to be the way most courts have gone. What's more surprising is, that uh, since uh, about 1977, there have been a series of cases that are called the House of Cards case. And they say if your repair and replacement provision falls, then everything else falls, including the no consequentials clause, and you're exposed to full liability. The first case on that was an Eighth Circuit case in 1977 called the Sue Line case. Walter, don't flinch. S-O-O, -O, not S-U-E. Um, uh, the Suline case, and um, a lot of the cases, like that case, have been in the federal courts trying to figure out what on earth the state courts would do if uh, they were to decide the case, because these are diversity cases under Erie. And uh, at least in the last year, the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts has come out with what I think is a significant decision, rejecting the House of Cards 
view and saying that if you put in two distinct provisions and if one is stricken under the code, then the other one remains. You can try to attack the other one on grounds of unconscionability unless you run a gas station by seed or in the, putting your stuff in the yellow pages, you probably uh, won't have a great deal of success. Um, I have a second case that uh, is from a court uh, at least as well known as the Cook County Court that decided the um, um, Cubs case. It's the Carnival Cruise Lines against Shoot case, and it's a consumer case. Um, and it was decided by the Supreme Court earlier this year with two judges dissenting. Um, the Shoots were from Washington. They decided they'd take a cruise uh, to Mexico which originated, I think, in Los Angeles. And so they went to a Washington travel agent, state of Washington, and bought uh, a ticket and flew, I guess, to LA and got on the ship, then went off to Puerto Vallarta. And at some point, Mrs. Shute slipped on a deck map during a tour of the galleys and uh, figured there was tort liability and sued in Washington. And Carnival Cruise Line said, oh, but we have a clause in the ticket. Look on the back in the fairly fine print, it says you have to sue us in Florida. We're a Florida corporation. Uh, the Ninth Circuit said no, that was not enforceable. The Supreme Court said yes, it is enforceable. And there is, I think, an interesting um, discussion in that case, which you ought to take a look at, uh, in comparison with Justice Grodin's discussion of adhesion contracts, among the other things. And realize that's a pretty, a pretty appealing case for the shoots. There in Washington, they've, so to speak, never heard of Florida. The Florida company's ship is operating on the West Coast. They don't go to Florida to take it. They go to L.A. to take it. It goes to Mexico. And the court says, nevertheless, the defendant wants to be sued in Florida. That's more efficient for the defendant, and you pay less for your ticket because of that efficiency. And there's nothing wrong with an adhesion contract per se. Uh, the mere fact that it is a standard form in today, at least uh, today's um, what method of doing business uh, is not uh, an impediment to enforceability. Uh, second point, don't whine, no punitive damages. Mr. Olson in his, his chapter uh, said uh, something about punitive damages. He did not say it this morning. Excuse me, other speakers have said things at other meetings recently on punitive damages, and you may recall some of those. Um, in any case, um, in the early 80s, I think, uh, when Justice Grodin was a member of the California Supreme Court, there was a um, decision unanimous by the court with a separate opinion by Chief Justice Byrd urging the court to go even beyond what they did. And it's the Siemens Direct Buying Service case. And it was um, um, a case that extended the bad faith breach liability of insurers, which was pretty well accepted in California and is spread fairly generally through many states in the United States. By dictum, it was extended to ordinary commercial contracts not involving insurers, as long as, at least as long as there was a special relationship. I uh, um, am giving only a superficial uh, discussion of the case, I fear. Um, and then many intermediate courts in California um, went on to discuss what would be a special relationship. I think it was assumed that uh, an employment relationship would be a likely candidate for a special relationship under Siemens. In 1988, the California Supreme Court decided uh, the Foley against interactive data case uh, of the 
Original court, only two, two members remained. Five new members um, did, I think it's fair to say, some violence to the Siemens case. And this is what a um, recent intermediate appellate court case said about that. It characterized Foley as a drastic change in the Supreme Court's decision. The winds of change blew in 1988. Before Foley, one could confidently suggest that at least two spheres of contract relationship, insurance and long-term employment agreements, uh, could give rise to bad faith breach and tort damages. And after Foley, only insurance was left, which suggests that California was back to where they were uh, before the Siemens case. The uh, Siemens case uh, has not been widely followed elsewhere. Montana is a case where bad faith breach is um, still alive and well, I take it. But certainly, uh, the experience in California is an upbeat experience for those who think that punitive damages have no place, at least in contracts. And there's another development which I'll mention only briefly, punitive damages in arbitration. Punitive damages in arbitration raises two questions. Um, one is, do arbitrators have power to award punitive damages in contract, well, in, in any case, uh, contract or other cases? And um, that is a question of the applicable substantive law. The state that has the most hostile view towards punitive damages in arbitration is New York. Going back to a case called Garrity against Lyle Stewart in 1976. Incidentally, I can give you citations to most of these cases. Somebody faulted professors yesterday for tossing off the names of cases as if you understood uh, all about them. Uh, given the time constraints, I think most of us will prefer to leave out the numbers that will come up afterwards. Uh, the Garrity case says that arbitrators do not have the power under New York law to award punitive damages. The second question was, what if you were an in an arbitration governed by the Federal Arbitration Act? Um, the Federal Arbitration Act that governs uh, important international, well, important or unimportant international arbitrations and many domestic arbitrations. And I think most people thought that the Garrity case was dead if you were governed by the Federal Arbitration Act, that federal arbitration policy um, would prevail. Um, in the last year, two cases, one Barbier, B-A-R-B-I-E-R, -E and the other Fonstock, H-A-F, H-F, I think somebody named Farnsworth could spell Fonstock, F-A-H-N-E-S-T-O-C-K, uh, were decided in the Southern District going in opposite directions. Barbier said, yes, that's right, um, in, uh, if the Federal Act governs, uh, even though New York substantive law is applicable because of the choice of law clause, the arbitrators can give uh, punitive damages. The Fonstock case said no, if there is a choice of New York law clause, then New York law governs, Federal Arbitration Act does not preempt that, and uh, arbitrators can award punitive damages. And uh, the Second Circuit has recently passed on the Fonstock case and has upheld the view that Garrity applies even though the uh, arbitration is generally governed by the Federal Act if there is a choice of New York law clause. So my message is I don't agree, disagree with Mr. Olson, I think, on some of the fundamental points, especially as applied to commercial cases. But I think I would say be of good cheer. 
Contracts is not dead, it's not even going to the dogs, it's alive and well. Some of you have been, will remember that both yesterday and I think this morning in Judge Bork's introduction, reference was made to the changing role of a perhaps changing judiciary and certainly those of you who look at the Carnival Cruise Lines case in the Supreme Court and look at the Foley case in the California Supreme Court will have the view that if the courts as they were constituted 10 years ago had faced those cases, uh, they would not be uh, examples that I would be giving you this morning for the uh, increasing or at least the resurgent role of contract as opposed to tort. Bit disappointing to hear that Western civilization is still alive. But, uh, <laughs> the speakers have uh, generally run over their time, uh, despite promises. Uh, <laughs> and I would add, I'll ask them to uh, confine themselves maybe to three, two or three, four minutes in their replies, so that we can get to the audience for questions. Mr. Olson. Fair enough. Uh, thank you. Uh, let me start by saying that I found uh, Randy Barnett's uh, comments uh, awfully persuasive. Uh, uh, in, in general, the um, divergence between one's moral estimate of promise and what the law has turned out to do in, in even our favorite uh, golden ages of the law often has to do with effectively evidentiary considerations. Um, and, uh, the doctrine of consideration itself, the, the complexities of offer and acceptance, the requirement of a writing, are ways in which uh, the court can reduce the risk of being mistaken about when there was an actual uh, uh, pr pr promise. Uh, they, they raise the requirement of proof, particularly in cases where there's a high likelihood of error or, or of someone fraudulently showing up claiming that there was a promise. And the general rule has, uh, has been that if you can get a high enough mound of evidence, you can get any promise in force, just <coughs> except for the slavery one, where there are, are, are you know, some historical reasons. Um, and uh, the difference with unconscionability, I think, is that it really put, as I put it, a penny in the fuse box. It meant that no matter how hard you tried, however clear the evidence of the other side's consent, uh, you just couldn't do it. And, uh, although, in many ways, I am in agreement with Professor Farnsworth that uh, the, the courts are not actually as bad as, as my anecdotes suggest. The uh, contract is perhaps alive and well, or at least recuperating on a carnival cruise ship. Um, <laughs> in, many, many sports assumption of risk cases have gone in, in the right direction, but I'm, I'm not entirely comforted to know that the only areas in which individual liberty has, has bitten the dust are consumer cases and small producer cases. Uh, it, it seems to me that we may want oil companies to continue giving franchises to people with a high school education rather than demanding postgraduate study. Uh, it, it strikes me that uh, the ability of large corporations to raise uh, public policy and unconscionability issues in their fights with each other, even if they don't win at trial, they may get past summary judgment and effectively have a weapon to tie each other up on their nonsensical uh, in intercorporate litigation. Uh, <clears throat> Ivana Trump, uh, I, I was struck uh, last year, uh, got past summary judgment on her claim that her $30 million plus mansion in Connecticut post-nuptial agreement with husband Donald was unconscionable. Although I, I, I have sometimes thought it would be unconscionable to have to be, be married to him, even at that uh, sort of reward. But <laughs> the, uh, <clears throat> 
But, but in fact, I mean, we, we get back, as Justice Grodin said, to the, the critique we have heard, the, the central sort of critique of oppression by private parties. And I w there's not really time to, to, to do this topic justice, but I would just point out that uh, we do not tolerate a level of imposition of risk from these oppressive parties that people inflict on themselves uh, without a middleman often. That is, people who uh, themselves smoke uh, are potentially going to be protected by rules against smoke in the workplace. Uh, you know, the, I, the, the farm case is a particularly poignant one because farms are among the most dangerous places, uh, like family-run coal mines, and, and yet, in fact, the, the, the people are, are creating their own risk. The, finally, on insurance bad faith, I would just point out that the reason this is such a, a, a hard case for reform is that we do not award legal fees to the prevailing party. Uh, that's what we ought to do. We wouldn't have to worry so much about insurance bad faith. And I consider that it does shock the conscience for us not to shift the fees. Let's start doing it. Well, first of all, I, I want to assure Randy Barnett that if he agrees to give a lecture in San Francisco, even California courts will not hold him liable for breach of promise. Um, they, I, 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 want to, I want to focus on this Carnival Cruise case because I think that's interesting. Um, it, the, the analysis uh, that Professor Farnsworth offers is uh, that the that the provision allocation of of, um, of um, uh, choice of law provision uh, is is an efficient uh, provision in that it reduces the cruise company cruise lines costs and therefore uh, reduces the uh, amount that people have to pay in order to take a cruise and of course that is true there's no denying that uh, the same analysis is available. Uh, across the board. Um, if, if I am admitted to a hospital and the hospital, uh, as a condition of admission, asks me to sign a form uh, waiving any liability on the part of the hospital uh, for negligence, no matter how gross, uh, there is no question that this provision uh, serves the uh, uh, economic interests of the hospital and indirectly uh, the interests of patients. It lowers the costs of medical care. Um, that kind of argument can be used uh, to support um, not only uh, cruise line uh, choice of law provisions, but any provision in any contract. The question is, um, what do we mean by choice? I mean, we, the, 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 uh, the shoots, I guess we can say they didn't have to take a cruise. Uh, but what do, we, what do we say to the person who is, who is about to enter the hospital, that, that he ought to um, uh, he, he ought to ask for forms from other hospitals to see whether uh, he can find a hospital that will, that will perform the operation without such a waiver, um, or reconsider whether, after all, he needs an operation. I mean, for, for people who are concerned with, con with contract as an instrument of choice, I think we have to ask ourselves um, what we mean by that in, in, in the real world. Um, and, and finally, one observation about the Foley case. First of all, I find myself more intrigued by Professor Farnsworth's arguments on the panel here in terms of response. 
Uh, with all respect, I don't read the Siemens case the way uh, he does, but uh, perhaps, it, perhaps it's susceptible to that reading. I participated in the decision. I don't think it stands broadly for the proposition of the breach of the covenant of good faith and fair dealing in the commercial contract context uh, gives rise to tort remedies. On the other, on quite the contrary, the opinion contains a lot of language uh, uh, discussing why that might be inappropriate and rejecting the notion uh, that a jury should be left to determine uh, when a breach is an efficient uh, uh, a breach or not, um, and, and uh, suggests that breach of the covenant would be appropriate uh, as a tort only in, in rather narrow uh, circumstances, uh, of which in California the insurance context is one. Um, there is a footnote in Foley suggesting that the employment context might also be appropriate for that. Um, I'm not sure that's true. Um, the Foley case uh, held that uh, breach of the covenant of good faith and fair dealing in the employment context does not give rise to a tort. Um, and and um, I, I can understand the policy arguments um, as to why uh, an employer who has breached his contract with an employee even on, under circumstances in which it could be said that he has done so in a manner inconsistent with the covenant of good faith and fair dealing, should not be subject to the range of remedies uh, commonly associated uh, with tort doctrine. On the other hand, I think it has to be recognized that the effect of the Foley case is that in California, the only people who can now bring suit against their employers for breach of contract are people who are in the high wage brackets and, and uh, whose claim is sufficient uh, to warrant litigation. Uh, people uh, who earn less, uh, your Joe Boilermaker, uh, can no more sue his employer uh, for, uh, for breach of contract as a practical matter than uh, in the old days a member of the union could sue the union for, for oppressive conduct. I find myself agreeing uh, with Mr. Olson that the way out of this dilemma uh, is uh, ideally is not does not lie in the direction of uh, choosing tort remedies over contract remedies, but rather uh, reframing uh, the kinds of remedies that that we have for breach of contract, uh, perhaps expanding them, uh, and um, uh, almost certainly including uh, uh, attorneys' fees. I think that's uh, that's at the very heart of the problem. Uh, and, and it's uh, one, uh, one of the uh, dilemmas that courts confront in this arena. Thank you. Uh, professors Barnett and Farnsworth will now reply, and I implore them for brevity so we can let the audience <laughs> attack various panels. Go ahead. Well, I will, I'll, um, I thought you were going to go first. Uh, I have, I have three very quick points. The first is with respect to uh, Mr. Olson's remarks on franchisees. One of the things that's been left out is the fact that legislation is far more important than uh, this discussion would suggest. Uh, the law of franchisees in most uh, states is uh, dominated by legislation, and that's true of the whole consumer area, so that I think these stories about what courts are doing, the total impact is a lot less important than what legislatures have done, at least in the consumer area. On the Schutz case, I may have done some disservice to uh, Justice Blackman, who wrote the opinion uh, by uh, giving such a short summary. What I said was essentially his argument, not mine. I think he would have no difficulty in distinguishing the cruise line from the hospital. 
Many states have distinguished uh, uh, hospitals from other activities, notably skydiving and stock car racing come to mind, and I wonder <laughs> how Justice Grodin would deal with an exculpatory clause in one of those uh, two kinds of activities. Most courts have said you choose uh, not the form, but you choose to engage in those activities. Uh, the Foley case also, I think, um, I do not know the name of the judge who wrote the Kopesky opinion in the Intermediate Court, but uh, my discussion of Foley consisted, Lauren Siemens consisted largely of a quotation from that court. Um, review was denied on that case by the California Supreme Court. One judge dissenting, the dissenting judge from denying review, apparently wanting to criticize this description of what happened, was one of uh, Justice Grodin's uh, colleagues on the original Siemens Court, Justice Mosk, uh, who I think is the only remaining member of that original group. He didn't like, apparently, what um, was said in the Pesky case either, but I uh, simply report that to him. Oh, yes, and I, I don't have time to criticize Professor Barnett, so please ask him some hostile questions. <laughs> <laughs> well, in the interest of getting to the uh, uh, questions, I'll waive my, uh, my response, except just to say that uh, if, if 10 years ago I was secure from being sued in California for failing to deliver a talk on contract law, I think it was only because the California courts would have questioned the competency of anyone who invited me to speak. <laughs> <laughs> Oddly enough, we have some time for questions. Do we have to, we, now we have to have some questions after all, is it? Yes. Hi. Uh, one, many of the legislative proposals for tort reform take the form of uh, having the federal government, Congress, act in, uh, in a number of ways. And my question is prompted because we have both constitutional and contract scholars on the panel, and that is, what are the preemption implications of these proposals for congressional action from both a policy and a constitutional perspective? Have we a, have we a volunteer? Or do you want to direct your question to somebody? Professor Barnett. Um. I refuse to answer a senator on the grounds that uh, may incriminate me. Um, I, I'm not, I really don't know that I have an answer, except to say that um, I'm, I am somewhat troubled by um, the, a trend uh, in to, to make state law, private law matters, a matter of federal, con uh, federal statute, uh, which we see, for example, in the tort reform movement. Um, and I mean, it doesn't really exactly go to the preemption question, but it does talk, it does at least go to my reaction. As much as I would like to see tort law reform and, and contract law reform at the local level, I'm, I'm troubled by federal legislation that uh, would accomplish that purpose. Um, it, yeah. If I could um, say, I, I think part of the answer to Randy's uh, qualms is that unfortunately we have, uh, through changes in jurisdiction and choice of law, we have invited the states to impose uh, their law and to collect damages from transactions that more properly belong to other states, so long as they are successfully externalizing their costs, uh, giving their citizens money at the expense of people in other states. Uh, the, the lawsuits are already interstate. No wonder the remedies may have to be interstate, unless we can turn back the clock on jurisdiction and choice of law. Mr. Olson, uh, you present uh, in your paper a number of outrageous, if not humorous, cases. I wonder to what extent they are typical and to what extent there were changes on appeal. This is a big country and you can always find something of an oddity. Uh, your cases are uh, reminiscent of those cited some years ago in the Aetna ads. I wrote to Aetna for the citations of the cases that they had 
looking them up, every one, while it may have been costly for the parties, were reversed on appeal. Well, I would not, of course, brush aside quite so lightly the cost imposed on a party by being subjected to this sort of thing. We know that uh, in the uh, in several of the cases there were settlements. Settlements are forever. In several other cases there were jury verdicts uh, uh, settled afterward. Uh, I, in fact, am relying on no source. Uh, I guess. Uh, well, I mean, the, the subway cases were all in the New York Times. The, I, uh, I can see you have an interest in, in you know, the, the challenging of these things, but I do think they check out. Gary? Yeah, Gary Lawson, Northwestern Law School. Uh, Wally Olson suggested that there really is cause for gloom after all, and it may have slipped by, so I want to make sure that, uh, that everyone's morning is, is, is actually ruined. He suggested, I think rightly, that even if a few cases are coming out correctly, even if a lot of cases are coming out correctly, that that's not the answer. The problem may not lie in the cases that uh, uh, are decided incorrectly in favor of plaintiffs, but rather from the cases that are decided correctly in favor of the defendants, but that are in fact decided. That is, as long as there is a non-zero chance that these kinds of claims can get past not just summary judgment, but Rule 11 sanction motions if they're, or, or, or their state equivalents, the suits will be brought and there will be enormous costs imposed on everyone except lawyers, whether or not they're successful. The way to turn that into a question is to ask in extending uh, uh, from Justice Grodin's remarks about the need for attorney's fees, uh, in the case of successful plaintiffs in certain kinds of actions, whether this suggests that it ought to go both ways and that there's a need for a, uh, an expanded notion of the British rule on attorney's fees uh, in, in the case of unsuccessful plaintiffs as well. Either Wally no, or, or I, Justice Grodin. Well, I, I think that um, the question you raise is a legitimate one. It's one that I've been concerned a good deal with. Uh, um, uh, I was on a committee of the state bar in California that was considering uh, recommending something like the British rule and, and uh, we were on the verge of doing that until we learned that in Britain there had been a, what, it, what was regarded as a very considerable reform to the rule and that was that, that plaintiffs and consumer actions were exempt from the liability for attorney's fees on behalf of defendants and, and um, that made us think that uh, uh, there are there are problems with with a uh, legal situation in which someone is penalized or, or uh, ha has to incur substantial sanctions for bringing an action uh, which is on the verge of the law, which tests new principles of law, which is brought in good faith, and so forth. And I think probably there have to be some exceptions for that. I really am concerned uh, with, uh, 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 how, however, in the contract situation, uh, it seems to be a general principle of liability for uh, attorney's fees for the prevailing party is not a bad principle. And, and, that, and that one of the most egregious uh, problems in the current situation is, is uh, the situation in which someone can say to, to a party to a contract, um, yeah, go sue. You know, maybe I owe you this money, uh, but your lawyer is going to tell you that you have to discount it by such an extent that you can't afford to bring the lawsuit. And, and um, that, that, that is not conducive to liberty or justice or anything else? Yeah. Uh, I, I just agree with both points. First, the actual decided cases are just 
small percentage, most of the damage is being done in negotiations and shakedowns and, and the rest. Second, the, um, uh, the injury that we don't hear enough complaints about from, from the, the trial lawyers is, is the injury that uh, the, is, is done through litigation to the opponent. And uh, that is not uh, exactly anecdotal. It, it tends to be more like 100% of the anecdotes because uh, it is the routine injury of most all litigation in our courts. Anybody have a comment over here? I, I should have been asking uh, people to identify themselves. I didn't. Our first questioner was Dan Troy, who was a well-to-do practitioner. <laughs> and uh, second speaker, I, I don't know. Will you identify yourself, please, and ask your question? Uh, my name is Mark Schumann. Uh, I have a two-part two point to make to Professor Grodin, and I'd like a response from Professor Barnett as well. I'd like to know from Professor Grodin if he really believes that uh, anyone has a choice in the contracts and agreements he or she makes. It seems from your remarks that you believe that the labor union member it does not participate in any sort of market for labor, that a person choosing a hospital or uh, an HMO doesn't really have any choice. And I'm wondering if you um, really believe that uh, the market doesn't exist anywhere from your remarks. The yeah. second point that I have is some research, and I only know it vaguely from uh, remarks that Professor Alan Schwartz has made in Yale, uh, has suggested that not every participant in a market must look at every single uh, aspect of the choice that he or she makes in order for the market to efficiently allocate resources. In light of those findings, if, if you accept their validity, uh, doesn't that reflect that only a few people have to choose uh, the hospitals in which they, uh, they enter or cruise ships in which they embark in order for the market to efficiently come up with the right exculpatory courses and the right allocation of costs? Mm -hmm. uh, well, on the first question, um, I certainly do think that, uh, that uh, uh, most uh, contracts are, uh, uh, are the product of choice in the commercial arena. Uh, I agree with Professor Farnsworth's distinction between the cruise ship and the hospital. Uh, I think that uh, while the, 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 we may be uh, not very meaningful to talk about uh, choice among uh, cruise ship operators with respect to choice of law provisions, I don't, I don't think that that's very meaningful. Certainly we can talk about choice uh, as to whether one uh, goes on a cruise ship or not, and I suppose it wouldn't pain me if the rule were that if you go on a cruise ship, you're stuck with whatever uh, choice of law provision appears on your ticket. Uh, I see a very substantial distinction between that and the hospital situation. And um, uh, I don't think that uh, there's much of a market, no, uh, for uh, a real market. Uh, with respect to uh, choice of hospitals uh, uh, as to uh, limitation of liability, I don't think it's realistic to talk about that. Um, and uh, the question then becomes wh where other things fit. For example, the employment context. I think that there's a lot of choice uh, in a lot of employment relationships and very little choice in others. Uh, and I think we have to make decisions about uh, uh, what we think about uh, the, the uh, operation of the labor market in general. And uh, I think we have to look at particular results. I mean, I, I think if, 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 you, if you want to, I don't think efficiency is everything. If, if, um, if the market produces a situation in which workers are subjected to uh, toxicity in the workplace, then that's a lousy market. And, um, and, and I think we ought to do something about it. Uh, 
Yeah, the, the only thing I would say is that obviously I take a different view of the matter. Uh, I think there's far more uh, choice in the market than, than, than Professor Grodin and people who argue this position think. And I also think that a lot of times the issue really isn't whether there's, well, there's two issues. The issue isn't really for them whether there's choice or not. The issue is can they make a choice-based argument against contract? Um, to, in order to you, in order to turn the the support, the underlying support of contract on its head, because they're really not interested in contract at all. They're really interested in the death. And I'm not saying this about Professor Groton, but I'm saying people who in this school of thought are really interested in bringing about the death of contract. So they take a choice. They make a choice-based argument in order to achieve this end, but they're not really sincere uh, in all cases to in, in being concerned about real choice or not. Um, I mean, so that so that would be. Uh, um, I guess that, I actually forgot my second point, but if I remember it after the next question, I'll, I'll mention it. Well, I think, we're, I think actually we've come to the limit of our time. If the uh, audience would like to have any break between this and the next panel, I assume you would. Uh, but I want to thank our panelists who have been highly intelligent, informative, and very amusing. <laughs>